following weeks of missile strikes, air raids and terror attacks in seven countries, the Middle East appears to be on the brink of a regional conflict involving Iran, Israel and the United States. Violence is expanding far beyond the war in Gaza. Pakistan has launched strikes inside Iran after Iran attacked targets in Pakistan. Israel and the Lebanese paramilitary group Hezbollah have been trading fire in a slowly escalating conflict. So far, the skirmishes have killed nine Israeli soldiers and more than 100 Lebanese, most of them Hezbollah fighters. The havoc being wrought in Gaza by the war between Israel and Hamas has begun to metastasize around the broader Middle East. In the occupied West Bank, Lebanon, Yemen, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq and Syria, the local body count now attributable to the war in Gaza is growing. In Ukraine, President Zelensky's men are running out of ammunition and their prospects for repelling Vladimir Putin's murderous illegal invasion are deteriorating. And as the world scrambles to avert multiple catastrophes, America, crucial to the coordination and delivery of Western support, looks set to pull the plug on the next expected shipment of money and guns bound for Kyiv in the front lines. High-stakes negotiations over a possible deal to aid Ukraine and reform the U.S. immigration system are at risk of collapsing. We are now on the edge of a complete failure by our lawmakers to either address border security or to help or not help our allies in Ukraine. And in the Middle East, America has already been directly drawn in. Iranian-backed Houthi rebels are claiming responsibility for a missile attack on a U.S.-owned cargo ship. U.S. helicopters repelled an attack by Houthi rebels, sinking three boats and killing all those on board. The U.S. and its allies have launched a round of airstrikes in Yemen. According to multiple national reports, the Navy's SEAL Team 6 is now in the Mediterranean, specifically Cyprus. Last week, two Navy SEALs lost their lives off the coast of Somalia during a night operation to intercept a vessel illegally transporting Iranian weapons to resupply Houthi rebels in Yemen. The men were part of Team 3, one of the eight publicly acknowledged SEAL teams whose brief is to spearhead global maritime security worldwide. In total, there are fewer than 2,500 active duty SEALs across the eight white teams whose actions the US government officially confirms. But within Naval Special Warfare, there's another SEAL team that conducts its business in a different operational paradigm. Formerly known as SEAL Team 6, the Naval Special Warfare Development Group is one of a small handful of elite forces that US Joint Special Operations Command designates a Tier 1 Special Mission Unit meaning the identities of its operators are a state secret, as are its exploits on the battlefield. Development Group, which the operators refer to as DevGru, comprises six units. Two specialise in intelligence and support, while the other four are designated as assault squadrons, whose primary area of expertise is, as today's guest, a former squadron member put it, going through doors. While the official size of SEAL Team 6 isn't publicly disclosed, each squadron is speculated to comprise somewhere in the order of 100 operators. And while their actions in combat are rarely commented upon by any official source, if you keep half an eye on the news, chances are you'll be familiar with some of their work. Today, a small team of Americans conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda. 
Navy SEALs swooped into Somalia Tuesday night and rescued two aid workers, one of whom is an American woman. In Yemen, U.S. Special Forces assaulted an al-Qaeda compound. A firefight ensued, and members of the elite SEAL Team 6 had to call in air support from helicopter gunships. Very good news, though, indeed, the successful rescue of Captain Richard Phillips. We are learning more of the SEAL Team 6 rescue of an American hostage in Nigeria. Development Group have been responsible for executing some of the most daring real-world operations in recent history some of which have become folklore in American culture after being portrayed in Hollywood feature films. Among their highest profile operations were Neptune's Spear, the night raid on Osama bin Laden's hideout in Abbottabad, Pakistan, that was later portrayed in Zero Dark Thirty, and the successful rescue of Maersk, Alabama Captain Richard Phillips from Somali Pirates, retold in the Academy Awards Best Picture nominee from 2014, bearing the skipper's name. And frankly, if these films are an even vaguely accurate depiction of how these operations unfolded, then these blokes earn their money. Hey, Mikey, I'm about ready to punch that time card. What's that? Marcus, move! Contact, 12 o'clock! This is Spartan Zero. Left QRF, 2-3 contact! Mikey, left is good. I say again, left is good. Left is not good. I say again, left is not good. Today's guest is retired Navy SEAL and former member of the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, Captain John Burnham, who after retiring from active duty, was tapped by the Obama administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, focusing on the non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. I'm Jack Wright, an Australian journalist based in New York City. I'm a contributor to the Washington Post and the Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of J.P. Morgan Chase. Captain Burnham and I sat down at his home in Arlington, Virginia on Monday and kicked off our discussion talking about his path to SEAL Team 6. Good morning, Captain Burnham. Thank you very much for having me into your home here in, uh, do we say Arlington, Virginia? Is that the correct? We are in Arlington, Virginia, yeah. How far are we geographically from the Arlington Memorial? We're probably about seven miles from Arlington National Cemetery. Okay, my, my DC geography is getting better, but it doesn't work that well on this side of the Potomac. So thank you very much for having me in this morning. Today, we're going to talk about a bunch of different issues, but we're going to come at them from the lens of your professional experience as a member of the Naval Special Warfare Development Group. But before we get into all that, I'd love if you could give us a bit of an outline of your background, um, your upbringing, and how you ended up in the military uh, and ultimately in the Naval Special Warfare Development Group. Sure. And thanks for having me. I grew up as a Navy brat. My dad was an aviation supply officer. And so we lived all over the place when I was a kid. We lived in Pennsylvania, Virginia, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, Okinawa, Japan, uh, and then came back here to DC about halfway through my freshman year in high school. I obviously knew the Navy growing up in it. The way that I came in was really, frankly, to pay for college. I got, a, I got a naval scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania. And then my intent was to serve four years and then move on. So I went out to San Diego and I was on, on a frigate. I did two deployments out there, the second of which was Desert Storm. But as I approached my four-year point, I really loved the Navy. And so I was trying to figure out what to do. And, and actually, 
I had worked to get some weight equipment installed on our little frigate. And the guy who I got connected with to, to install and build these, these weight machines, he had been a team guy. He had been a SEAL in Vietnam. And he was the one that cold pitched me on Naval Special Warfare. And he was when he brought me over to SEAL Team 5. I talked to a couple of guys and I got the slot to come over into BUDS. So I was a little older. I was 27 or 28 when I, when I went through BUDS, but was able to you know, finish the training and then got stationed back on the East Coast. Is it as hard as the movies portray BUDS? You know, it is hard. No question. Um, but what we would always say is if, if you don't have anything medically wrong with you, you can complete BUDS. But that's like saying, if you don't have anything cognitively wrong with you, you could complete medical school, right? So it, it was hard. It was a grind. So after you completed BUDS, you went to SEAL Team 5, is that right? Went to SEAL Team 2 on the East Coast. So got stationed back at SEAL Team 2. Um, SEAL Team 2, SEAL Team 4, um, three tours at the development group, closed out at a joint interagency task force as the commander there, and then retired active duty in 14. Those three tours with development group or dev group. What can you tell us about, firstly, what the Naval Special Warfare Development Group is and the difference between that outfit and the rest of the SEAL teams? So DevGru is tasked and resourced with coming up with new and innovative ways to get after different missions, uh, try out new equipment, try out new tactics, and it's staffed by more experienced folks across the board, operators, intelligence, logistics, medical these are all folks who have previously deployed, been proven, been vetted, been recommended by their commands. So you actually have to go through a second screening process consisting of physical tests, boards. Green team, right? Yep. You have to an interview board to go through um, to actually get assessed into the command. So it's got a larger scope, got a global remit. So it works with a number of different agencies, a number of different international partners and allies. What's DevGru good at? What's their core competency in so far as the battlefield goes? You know, inside special operations, they talk about the five mission areas, direct action, special reconnaissance, unconventional warfare, foreign internal defense, and counterterrorism. And the way it's traditionally described, Army Special Forces will have unconventional warfare and foreign internal defense as their number one and number two. Naval Special Warfare will have direct action and special reconnaissance as their number one and number two, just because of the way the forces are differently trained, manned, and equipped. DevGru will have all of those missions, all five, as their primary. Is it scary going out and doing this stuff? You know, I would always tell guys, it is okay. I would differentiate between feeling fear and being scared. It is understandable to feel a little bit of apprehension or, or fear. The things that we are doing are not normal. Mm. Number one, if you did them in any other context besides this war zone, you'd be in jail. Breaking into people's compounds, capturing them, kidnapping them, you know, if you want to put it in civilian terms. So what we are doing is not normal, but that's why we train so much and that's why it's a very unique mission. But having said that, it is okay to feel apprehension. And when you do, you need to grab it and recognize it and let it fuel your preparation, your thoroughness in, in how you're focusing, you know, l let it, let it be used to a positive, right? If you push it aside or if you deny it, chances are it may bubble up at the wrong time. Mm. So when we do get on target and things do accelerate, if you're not quite locked in, if there's still a little part that's not buttoned down, then that may be an issue. 
being scared is that moment where you're just paralyzed. The prefrontal cortex is overwhelmed and you, you know, fight, flight, freeze. So you don't ever want to get there. You don't want anybody being there, but it's okay, you know, to feel that little bit of butterflies. I can remember when we would all be on the helo because you'd be packed into a 47 and I'll admit it. Anybody will admit it. When you're sitting there on the deck of the helo, you're all squeezed in shoulder to shoulder. It's going to be a two hour flight across country, you know, to wherever the target is just the energy that's humming in that helicopter. And you're realizing that, you know, we are about to go get put somewhere and go walk around in this country that nobody else in their right mind would want to do. So that feeling right there, it's enervating, right? You should be able to use that energy because these are guys that you know and you trust and you've worked so hard. What could you liken it to in the civilian world? Is, is it like the butterflies before a, a, a big race? That's kind of what we're talking about, although presumably slightly more powerful than that, given what you're about yeah. to go and do. You know, I, I played rugby um, and I played out at Old Mission Beach Athletic Club in San Diego. Um, and, you know, before a big match, the way you feel, you're warming up, you're trying to get everything loose and limber and step out onto the field, literally, right? Or out the back door of an aircraft in your case. <laughs> Are you able to give us an example of a mission that one of those SEAL task forces has been on that we may have seen or heard about in the press? I think one of the more well-known ones, and, and it's also an instructive example of the interdependencies and the connected nature of our operations, is the rescue of Captain Phillips, the Maersk captain who was kidnapped by pirates. As portrayed by Tom Hanks, I believe. As portrayed by Tom Hanks. Yes, exactly. And in that instance, what gets written in the news about it is SEAL snipers killed the pirates, rescued Captain Phillips. And that's kind of, that's it. The reality of that is so much more extensive because in the case of that incident, obviously there is a response capability to be able to go anywhere in the world, but that takes time. Mm. And what we had been working on um, and what special operations in general had been working on post 9-11 is putting small groups in different embassies around the world to be able to work with the country teams there in what Special Operations Command would deem to be high-priority country. Not that there's anything necessarily going on, but there could be. The fact that we had operators there at the embassy, and not just that, but then some years before that, one of the operators who was there had an idea and said, you know, this, this anti-piracy task force with these Navy ships that are out off in the North Arabian Sea and then down south, we should be able to, if we had to, we should be able to jump and, and get to one of them. And when you're jumping, we jump free fall, obviously, but when you jump over water, it's a different parachute than when you're jumping over land. Okay. When you're jumping over water, especially if you're jumping at night, you will have not just your reserve packed by a special rigger, somebody who's trained to pack those things because they are packed differently. When you pull your reserve, it needs to come out immediately because chances are you're going to need it immediately. In a water rig, you'll actually have your main packed the same way because when it's night, and you're out just a couple thousand feet over the water, when you deploy, you don't want to have a nice soft unrolling of your canopy. You want it just bang. You want it, You want to know you're under canopy. So that requires riggers have to come out, unpack them and repack them. It was a logistics tale for the command, but the operator made the pitch and said, we need to have these just in case. And so just in case showed up when Captain Phillips was on his lifeboat. And so there was that angle to it, the ability to work with the Navy, uh, the USS Bainbridge, that commanding officer and that crew, they were phenomenal. 
It was classic ship of the line that got them to within the vicinity of, of the lifeboat, got them under tow. How did they get there? Can you give any more detail? Are you able to talk specifically about how they inserted and sort of what happened? The general tactic for deployment of a SEAL task group like that would be to deploy with boats, high-speed assault craft out of C-17s. The high-speed assault craft go out first and then jumpers go out behind. Everything lands in the water. You derig the high-speed assault craft. And then typically there will be a large Navy ship, an amphib carrier merchant that can crane the boats aboard. And then you use that as your afloat forward staging base. Makes sense. So that's going on, but that takes, you know, 24 to 30 hours by the time you do the spool up and the flight and the in-flight refueling and everything else takes some time. You know, the amount of interagency work that went into being able to help the ship's crew as they were talking to the pirates, without that, without that expertise from State Department on understanding the relations among all the clans, all of that also was necessary in order for our operators to be able to do what they did. It's fascinating. I mean, it, there's a lot more to it than just kicking indoors, isn't there? Have you been involved with or worked on any other high-profile raids, you know, against targets I would have heard of or things we would have read about in the press? Yes. Can you name who any of those targets were? No. <laughs> <laughs> the look that John just gave me across the desk, I, I'm going to move on. <laughs> so when you think about some of the higher profile operations, the target itself is always complex because there's human beings running around on that target. So anytime you go on a target with other humans running around, it's a complex situation and things can go sideways quickly. But there is everything around that. We used to say the X is assumed. We would call the target the X. When you would go brief higher level leaders in DOD or the interagency, they just assume you're going to do your job on target. They don't need 87 slides to show how you're going to tactically approach the target and what you're going to do when you're on target and all of your contingency plans and everything else. They assume you know how to do your job. They're concerned about everything else around it. They're concerned about the regional effects. They're concerned about, you know, host nation sensitivities if we're doing this without the host nation knowing. They're concerned about equities that the U.S. has in other parts. There are so many other things they're concerned about. And then in the end, the mission is going to get approved or it's not. And it's never anything personal. It's just that whoever is the decision maker is presumably going to take all that into account mm. and they're going to approve it or they won't, especially if it's a singular operation, not in you know, a war zone where a bunch of authority and approvals have already been delegated down to a military commander. Now, after your time at the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, I'm not going to say that every time, after your time at DevGrew, you then became the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense. Tell us a bit about that role. I got over into the Pentagon. I had never served in the Pentagon while I was in active duty and made the decision to retire for family reasons and really didn't right off the bat have a plan of what I wanted to do. And the assistant secretary for Nuke Chem and Bio uh, over in the Office of Secretary of Defense, we had done work with Nuclear Chemical Biological Directorate over there in OSD. He reached out when he found out I was retiring and asked if I would be interested in doing this. My portfolio was threat reduction and arms control. Thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, I knew the combatant commands. I knew embassies. I knew those arenas. What I needed to learn was the Pentagon jungle. So when you describe your portfolio as biochemical and nuclear threat reduction, I mean, that sounds to a layman like you were working on the non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Is that right? It is. In the cooperative threat reduction program, it's one of those amazing stories 
that people just don't know about. When the Soviet Union fell and the republics broke apart and broke off, there were still nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons all over those republics because obviously that was the outer edge of the Soviet Union. And there was great concern, primarily about the nukes, losing control and making the situation much worse. It's quite extraordinary when you think about it that not one single operable nuclear device ended up loose in the world when, I mean, there were nuclear weapons in Ukraine and the rest, right? All of these satellite states. So that was the first primary accomplishment. And then they got dismantled in Russia. So... First, I just want to talk a bit about diplomacy, and we've touched on a bunch of this already, but a theme that we're seeing emerge in the United States is a deteriorating level of support in Congress for foreign wars and the projection of American influence outside of America. So the best example of that is the war in Ukraine. First of all, what's your perspective as a soldier on the current state of the war in Ukraine? And do you think that the United States should continue to provide money and guns to help the Ukrainians fight the Russians back? Second question first. Absolutely. Funding, weapons, ammunition, aircraft, HIMARS, tanks, it should be everything. I absolutely think we should be doing that. What Ukraine has been able to do, when you look at how well they were prepared and the leadership that they have in the person of President Zelensky, it's incredible be war college case studies for years and years and years, how they were able to really take this disaggregated battlefield and even come up with the effects that they have with the limited amount of resources that they started with and how far back on their heels they were knocked initially. Again, just incredible. And as president says, they're fighting for their lives. And also for the rest of the world, right? Sure. Do you subscribe to the view that you have to push back on this sort of authoritarian encroachment on democracy wherever it happens? Yeah, absolutely. And that really is the ideological break that has emerged in Congress, right? America first means let's stop sending our boys overseas. I mean, how do you counter that argument when it's put in front of you? We have had that argument internally in the U.S. forever. And what you see, I think, in Ukraine is they've done a marvelous ability from a lightly armed local militia perspective of being able to impede the Russian advance and do enough damage and bloody their nose enough that they've really stopped the progress. But without that large conventional push, you're not going to take all the territory back. So that's why I think we have to give them what they need and what they want. And by all reports, the Ukrainians have proven themselves adept, not messing around with these things. Commentators have criticized the success of the counteroffensive and the volume of its territorial gains this year. I've spoken to guys that are fighting on the front line there, um, and I've seen some pretty confronting helmet cam footage of what's going on right at the front. I mean, these guys are 10 and 15 meters away from the opposing trenches. It's what I imagine World War I was like. It's very World War I, like it's, it's Battle of the Hercgren Forest in World War II. It's the hedgerows in France. I mean, it's absolutely terrifying to a civilian. Yep. But here's my question for you. How can you describe the fighting that's going on now? How hard is it for the Ukrainians? And to you, is it understandable that progress is slow? You're exactly right. It's completely understandable that progress is slow. We talked a little bit earlier about being deployed in environments where you are under stress the entire time. You are at risk the entire time. You are in contact with the enemy the entire time. That wears on you psychologically, it wears on you physically, and that constant requirement to be ready to react or ready to act, that alone, never mind the cold, never mind the mud, 
you know, in the end, it's the three of you sitting in that trench or behind that defilade, and that's it. There's nothing else. There's no other bigger machine. Let's move on to the Israel-Hamas war. Looking just at October 7 and the Hamas incursion into Israel, were you surprised by how successful that operation was? And what are your thoughts on the intelligence failures of the Israeli state that made it possible for that operation to be so deadly? I was surprised at how much damage Hamas was able to do. I am by no means an expert on on Israeli-Palestinian topics, but I was surprised at the degree of success that they were able to have at a tactical level. It was surprising. And I think that at some point, Israel is going to have to do an assessment. They have to look very hard at why something like that was allowed to happen. What are your views on what's occurring in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden? Is that a material change in the overall way that the conflict's unfolding? And do you think that the current response is appropriate? Whether it's a material change or not remains to be seen. It is definitely concerning. Mm. I work in that area of the world back in 09-10. I don't know whether it's a material change or not, but it is absolutely a change in their tactics to come at shipping directly, to come at US-connected shipping directly, but they've been at this for a little while now. The part that concerns me more, I think, just from having spent so much time in Afghanistan and Pakistan is the little exchange that we just had last week between Iran and Pakistan. Things like that concern me. The terrorist group, insurgent group, proxies, that doesn't necessarily concern me as much as two nuclear-armed states lobbing missiles at each other. That kind of came out of nowhere to some extent, didn't it? What's going on there? I'm like you. I read that in the news. I'm sure there are folks who've been tracking it for a while. The Iran deal was a good one. I mean, it was as good as we could get. It at least controlled their behavior. And so to pull out of that, to to cut all ties, never helps. What do you think the chances of the conflict on the Lebanese border with Hezbollah escalating as part of this are? Is that the most likely flashpoint that could trigger a broader conflict that might draw Iran and the US in more directly? I spent time up in the Levant again, back in that sort of late 2000s era, early 2010s. And Lebanon's fascinating. Hezbollah having morphed into a a political party. The short answer to your question is, I don't think it's going to escalate. For a long time, you've seen missiles and rockets exchanged between southern Lebanon and northern Israel. Even when I was over there back then, this is one of these things that is going on, probably out of the limelight, but still there. So I think that that situation is more stable in its instability than some of these other areas where you haven't had this long simmering low-level fighting that somewhat inures the governments and the populations to this is what you have so i'm not as concerned about that as i am about figuring out how the gaza situation ends figuring out how regional partners like the emiratis and the saudis and the jordanians and the egyptians come together to help i tend to agree with you For what it's worth, all of the language from the leadership, it has all seemed fairly carefully calibrated and designed to save face while not entering the conflict. It seems to speak to what you're saying. Changing tack a little bit, let's talk about Afghanistan, a a part of the discussion which uh, presumably is, is very close to your heart. Did you spend much time in Afghanistan over your time in the development group? Number of rotations, just like everybody. A number of rotations over there. 
focusing mostly on the east and the south, um, not a lot of time in the west. That, that's where it was kicking off in the east, right? Yeah. Coast province, that sort of area. That was yep. some of the heaviest fighting. Yes, Coast Gardez, Jalalabad, uh, the Konar Valley. And so what, what sort of work were you doing out there? You know, it's interesting because we talk about that sort of isolated operational environment. If I think about the first couple of times that we were over there, we had plenty of freedom of movement could drive around in the daytime and we could talk with people and our interagency counterparts would go with us and we'd talk with the tribes. And as the adversary got more focused, we shifted, of course, in the special operations side to nighttime operations. And I remember we had one operation we were on where it turned into a larger fight. And so we wound up staying there until daybreak and being relieved by the conventional force who came in and sort of took over security. And then we flew out. It was interesting because one of the younger operators, as we were flying back, we fly back over Afghanistan and, you know, the eastern part of the country in particular and the northern part of the country are beautiful. I mean, they're up above the timber line. I mean, it's the, it's the foothills of the Hindu Kush. So it's gorgeous. So we flew back and we landed at, at Jabad and we're, we come back in and we're, you know, downstaging and everything. And, and one of the younger guys said, you know, this is a pretty beautiful country. First time I've really seen it. Here's a guy who, all of his deployments, he lands in Bagram or Jalalabad. He lives behind the T-walls and then every night flies out to different compounds all over the place. And as law enforcement says, you're encountering people on the worst night of their lives, right? And what does that do to your perception of the country after a while? So spent a lot of time over there. Um, you know, a lot of us say, you know, sort of our hearts in Afghanistan. So in view of that, I mean... How do you feel looking at what's happening in Afghanistan today? It's heartbreaking. Um, I think for a lot of us who, who served over there, and you were never really sure how it was going to come out. My wife and I talk about basically every place we've served through our careers is worse than when, when we got there. Um, and that's an indicator of the hard places we went to not the merits of the job that anybody did. These are hard problems. When we tried to make it into a much bigger thing and turn Afghanistan into a Western democracy, I think that was a stretch. And the U.S. departing, I think what folks did not count on was how rapidly the, the army and the rest of the Afghan organizations would collapse. But I mean, it's also not that hard to understand why they fell over so quickly, given that the spigot was closed in terms of American support logistically once the decision to evacuate the airport was made. And so from a strategic standpoint, can you come up with any reason why the withdrawal was executed the way it was, shutting everything completely and then closing the airport in such a short period of time? So I think that, so the answer is no. Um, I, I, I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, it seems I, like it was guaranteed to generate a bad outcome. So if you go with the assumption that everybody's trying their best, right? I think one of the things that precipitated that quick withdrawal was the Doha discussions two or three years prior, mm -hmm. where we signed the agreement with the Taliban, not the Afghan government, the Taliban, and gave them all that time to lay that groundwork and say, here it is. This is when they say they're leaving. Quite extraordinary that that occurred, right? That it, behind the back of the Afghan government, that a bilateral discussion on a neutral party soil happened about America leaving Afghanistan. It, to say it out loud even surprises me. Really odd. I can understand the benefit of, of wanting to have Bagram still, but then you know, we've been there for 20 plus years. At what point do we shut down the occupation? 
All right, we're almost out of time. So last question on a completely different topic, but I have a lot of listeners in Australia. I wondered whether or not you've ever spent any time with the Australian military in a war zone and whether or not you had any comments about Australian-American mateship on the battlefield. Particularly in the Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand, UK, Canada. We always did a lot of work together. In the 90s, in particular, pre-9-11, we traveled to Australia with a, for a big exercise once. They would come to us, got to know people, and that paid off after 9-11 because we did do a lot of work with SASR um, in theater. And you get to know those folks, get to operate with them. Both of our countries started from rather inauspicious beginnings, and so there's that fierce streak of independence, but then also... Well, we haven't had our revolutionary war yet, but, you know, maybe it's coming. <laughs> haven't had the revolution, but the parallels are strong. We did a lot of work with SASR, with also with the Australian Federal Police. When we get into that interagency arena and here at the embassy in DC, number of ties, exchange officers, you know, we, to this day we have exchange officers down in, in CENTCOM and SOCOM from Australia. So very important. So I think especially with Australia, especially with the rest of the Commonwealth, I mean, we have to maintain those training events to come up with those, those opportunities to get to know each other and trade, whether it's commanders conferences, any other types of exchanges, and then certainly, you know, training out in the field. Captain Burnham, thank you very much for having me into your home today. Absolutely. It was great. Thanks. Cheers. Really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of The Intersection. I'm Jack Wright, and as ever, thank you very much for listening.